This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello world, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Episode 9 of Winter 2018, talking about Episode 9 of Darling in the Franks. Today we are all about love triangles. Now, it's typical for anime to use love triangles or love polygons to drag out the drama in interpersonal relationships. And while the audience could pick up on how Ichigo felt about Hiro and how Goro felt about Ichigo long before the characters themselves seem to realize, once each of them does recognize how they feel, there is little delay in coming clean. Ichigo still doesn't understand how she feels at the end of episode 5, but I think begins to understand by the end of the fight with Target Beta. The very next episode, Zero Two's own antagonizing of her clarifies it further, and by the end of the day, she confesses to Hiro. Whether he fully understood or not, she still squared up to it. Likewise with Goro, who started to really question how he felt about Ichigo during the beach trip, and the girls versus boys fight probably gave him the sense of urgency he needed to face his feelings. The prospect of having a permanent wedge between him and Ichigo was probably more upsetting than he anticipated and we do see him being the main force behind attempts to reconcile throughout the episode. Now, last time about that episode, I said, I think the point of an episode like this is to signal a starting point for some of these relationships to progress to the next step. Well, today's episode was all about that kind of character progression, so let's get to it. Now, the first six episodes of the series comprise the first major arc of the story, and it's all about Hero and Zero Two getting to a place where they could permanently be partners. Ever since then, we have stopped devoting as much time to them and have spread our attention to other characters. This has been reflected in voiceover narration and whose thoughts we hear as well, since Hero, who was the voice of the narrator through the first six, has not played narrator since then. The beach episode was narrated by Ichigo, and it was largely her thoughts we heard. Though that wasn't the first time we'd heard her thoughts, it was a change to have her do opening and closing narration and summary thoughts. Last episode, we had very little of hearing other characters' thoughts, and our final narration about lilacs was provided, I think, by Miku. In this episode, we get to be in Goro's head for the first time, and he provides our opening-closing narration as well. He starts the episode by speaking about the weather, or so it seems, but as he speaks in second person and is watching Ichigo, it becomes clear that he is using weather and the idea of forecasting as an analogy to trying to predict her state of mind. His analogy is evocative and poetic, saying that he can tell what's coming, whether sudden squalls or clear blue skies, by following your gaze. What's more, he says that your forecasts are always simple and accurate, which seems to imply that, whether cheery or stormy, her disposition is entirely predictable to him. That is to say, he knows her well enough to always guess correctly. This will get reinforced in his early conversation with Hiro, and then gets a callback at the very end of the episode in a way that suggests a change in the status quo. 
His ruminations, though, are interrupted by Santa Claus. Okay, not literally, but, well, this is just speculative and a minor detail, but from some of the clues we've had so far in this series, especially the constellation Orion and how high it was in the sky, we can surmise that it is currently winter in this universe. Is it possible that this is literally Christmas, but it has survived only as a day in which Papa, supplanting Santa Claus, brings gifts to parasites or potential parasites, which, as far as we know, are the only children in the world? It's probably unimportant in the scheme of things, but it's a creepy notion that I still find pretty plausible based on what else we know about this world. Either way, presents. In case we were still wondering about the status of Zero Two in this group, I think this image sums up where we are pretty nicely. She's even excluded from the presence, which we'll get to in a second. First, let's just take note again at the show using single short scenes to characterize our cast, this time by the choices they've made for their gifts. Miku and Kokoro have both chosen feminine things, some perfume and what I think is either makeup or jewelry, and the two of them, I think, have been presented as our most obviously girly girls in the series so far. They were the two who were the main focus of the guys in the beach episode, too, if you'll recall. Ikuno has chosen books, and her partner Mitsuru has chosen a nice writing pen, reflecting their quieter and more introspective natures. I said last time that I suspect Mitsuru to be the most sensitive out of the guys, and the choice of a fine pen, and him opening it privately, away from everyone else, seems to reinforce this idea. Zotome has chosen sports equipment, befitting his high energy and competitiveness, and Fitoshi... <sighs> food. Man, I've seen sheets of paper that were more three-dimensional than this guy. Ichigo has chosen a stuffed animal, and Goro's comet makes it clear that this is a long pattern with her. She is indignant, but also slightly embarrassed at being called out on it. This reminds me immediately of the scene in episode 2, where she is using kitty-speak at the cat while waiting on Hiro, but plays it off when she gets caught. Then, as now, it is a black cat. Uh, it seems to be the very cat that she was playing with during Goro's opening thoughts. I think for Ichigo's character, the handful of childish interests they've given her uh, do two things. One is that it counterbalances the seriousness and occasional confrontational nature she puts on when she's in the role of squad leader. The other is that it separates her from Zero Two in a way that keeps both of them feminine. She is girlish, while Zero Two is womanly. This is something I pointed out before in the difference between their two nightgowns. Worth noting as well is that she only seems to be embarrassed or self-conscious about it when around the guys. She had no reservation about playing with the cat in front of Ikuno, or, as we'll later see, sleeping with several stuffed toys. Goro has chosen a fishing pole. If I'm not mistaken, this is a fly fishing rod, which has some interesting subtext of its own. One is that fly fishing is heavily associated with fishing in moving waters, like rivers and streams, usually, uh, so I'm not actually sure where he plans to use this. Plantations are big, but not big enough to actually have moving water. This makes me wonder if it is meant to be associated with our water themes instead of any practicality. Another thing that makes it interesting is that fly fishing differs from what you might normally think of as fishing in its philosophy, for lack of a better word. Uh, because of the types of environments where fly fishing can be practiced, uh, the proximity of fishermen to fish and the silence it therefore requires, and the active and rhythmic pattern of casting, the whole hobby is very zen-like. It's very contemplative. In Japanese history specifically, this arose to its adoption by samurai as a hobby that was fitting as a way to train their minds, and, when swords were outlawed in the Edo period, as a way to train their bodies as well. 
In other words, it's a worthy hobby for a ruminating warrior, and this episode characterizes Goto in just such a way. Finally, Hiro has a field guide to birds. Should we assume he has always liked birds, and that this is why he so readily adopts flight metaphors? Or should we guess that his encounter with the ill-fated two-wing bird, and later acceptance of being half of a gin bird pair, has itself caused this interest in birding? Either way, an interest in flight, and perhaps the freedom it represents, is still foremost in his mind. Upon seeing the book, Zero-Two asks if it's an ehong, and Hero's response that this isn't a picture book, it's an illustrated guide, might sound a little silly. Aren't those just two ways of saying, book that has pictures? But it turns out the connotation of the words is different. It's much like some people will bristle if you refer to their anime as cartoons. If you image search for the kanji for that word, ehon, you get results that look like this. So clearly the implication of the term she uses is books for kids. Now, Hiro's not annoyed that she thought he chose a kid's book. Uh, in fact, he tries to ask if that's something she likes and says that they have some in the study. I think this is interesting because it means she knows what a kid's book is, but didn't recognize a field guide. This suggests to me that she was around books as a young child, uh, that maybe someone somewhere read to her, but that she was not around books in later childhood and maybe at all in adulthood. We don't yet have a timeline of her past or even many details, but the fact that she didn't know about the ritual of receiving presents each year tells us that she has not had the same childhood as the other parasites. In fact, these two details taken together suggest to me that her childhood was interrupted and basically stolen from her. Maybe that was because she became subjected to whatever has been done to her to make her monstrous, or because her piloting aptitude forced her into that role more quickly than usual, or some other disruption that we can't yet guess. Either way, it's a tiny detail that may go toward explaining why she's so different from the other parasites and is still nowhere close to fitting in with them. We get no more on the topic, though, as Zodome interrupts to read Papa's message to them. Now, his message strikes me, and probably a lot of you, as a form letter, a propaganda, a generic message applicable to a wide range of recipients. That is, it's not the heartfelt, personal message that the parasites all seem to take it as. It's another example of their naive trust in Papa and the society that makes sense with their limited context, but one that the audience is likely suspicious of. And probably not just the audience. Everyone smiles at Papa's warm words and at Zodome's enthusiasm for them, except Zero Two. In fact, the show makes a point of having Hiro look at her reaction, or, or lack thereof, and having his own countenance shift. Once again, we're reminded that Zero Two knows a lot more about the world than our squad. Her outsider status, though, means we still aren't close to having her tell us much more. After the credits, we have a nice visual representation of our love polygon, with Goro looking at Ichigo, who's looking at Hiro and Zero Two, who are looking at each other. Ichigo is actually creeping on Hiro and Zero Two, something we've seen her do before, and it's clear she is trying to be sneaky about it since she shushes Goro. What she's watching is Hiro giving a gift to Zero Two, who received no gift of her own from Papa. It's a sweet gesture, and his uncertainty and bashfulness as he presents it is kind of endearing. Giving someone a gift that belonged to someone else can be seen as a faux pas, uh, especially from one girl to another, but I don't think this is the kind of world where the parasites can run to the local mall or hit up Amazon or something. Zero Two doesn't take it that way, at least. It's more symbolic, really. Having something that was Naomi's become Zero Two's, letting the change in possession of the mirror represent the change in partnership and relationship as well. This will actually get an echo at the end of the episode, which is why I think it's presented this way. 
Speaking of symbolic, well, first of all, this is the mirror from the opening credits. The one that is smashed with a girl's eye reflected in it, and then another eye with glasses reflected in the eye. However that works. We can guess now that the eye belongs to Zero Two, and the eye with glasses is probably someone antagonistic to her since the mirror is shattered. I don't think we've met anyone with that style of glasses yet. However, I feel like the super thin and perfectly circular rims suggest that the person will be some kind of intellectual villain. That's another one of those anime patterns that shows up with an odd frequency. But that's not the part of the mirror that's interesting. That design on the back? That's mistletoe. I've said before that I thought the show might be referencing mistletoe, and that it had some really interesting mythology, but I wanted to make sure before going down that rabbit hole. Well, now we've had the tree from the credits and Zero Two's opening narration, which I'm pretty sure is full of mistletoe. And then we have the name of their boarding house, Mistletine, which is another word for mistletoe. Now we have this mirror design. So I'm positive they mean for mistletoe to be invoked. Uh, there's a lot to unpack, so we will table this until theme, and we'll pick it up then. Anyway, in the actual scene, Zero Two is delighted once she gets over her initial puzzlement. She says that she never knew getting a present from someone could make her this happy, which suggests again that she never took part in this ritual before. Or has ever been given a present before, unless she means that presents don't usually make her happy, and getting one from someone she adores like Hiro makes for a different experience. As we've seen before, Ichigo reacts to this confirmation of their relationship by drooping her head. The sight of her hairpin triggers Goto's memory of their shared youth and a different year for Papa's presence. Ichigo wants stuffed animals, but Hiro's comments about Ichigo's lengthening banes gives Goro an idea. It seems he uses his own present request to get a hair clip for Ichigo, and that kind of selflessness is especially precious in children. Unfortunately for Goro, Hiro is also a pretty stand-up guy, and also asked for a hairpin for Ichigo. I guess this universe only produces one kind of pen. Now Goro has held onto it all this time, it seems. I wonder if he occasionally took it out, and wondered to himself why he kept it why he'd held on to it for years when it seemed so superfluous. And I don't know if the earlier scene was the exact trigger or not, but you can see where watching Ichigo watch Hiro, and the reminder of the hair clip he's held on to all along, could suddenly click it all into place for him. That seems to be the thrust of the matter when Hiro returns from the bath, and Goto admits that he'd seen him and Zero Two interact. He brings up their conversation from before, during the beach trip, and then tries to explain to Hiro that while he didn't understand all this love stuff then, he thinks he has it figured out now. Furthermore, he likens the way Hiro feels about Zero Two to the way that Ichigo feels about Hiro, even suggesting that she probably wants to do that kiss thing with him. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <whistles> Hiro is actually surprised by this, and Goto himself is surprised that Hiro hasn't noticed. I guess that answers the question of whether or not he interrupted her shooting star confession on purpose. Once that part clicks into place for Hiro, though, he can immediately make the leap that Goro must feel that way about Ichigo, too. But he doesn't even have to say it, as Goro has finally figured out his own mind. As he says, watching Hiro lately made his own feelings clear to him, and he doesn't beat around the bush. He says straight up that he realizes he loves Ichigo. That directness is rather refreshing in an anime love triangle, don't you agree? It's a burden off of him to say it out loud, which is usually true of secrets. Now, he says he's plenty happy with the way things are, and Goro seems such a wholesome lad, you might be tempted to believe him. But a few lines before, his confession is actually tinged with some sadness, maybe even some envy. 
He says that he knows what makes her laugh and what makes her cry, but that none of them would work for him. Then he adds, you might be the only one who can, Hero. Now, these lines are a callback to his earlier thoughts about the weather and forecasting her outlook, and I'm sure Goro wants her to be happy even at his own expense. That's been his behavior a few times already, actually, like leading up to the mock battle. For the moment, it's at least plausible. Except, he has held on to that hair clip. Cutting straight to Ichigo's room, she's also held on to the one that Hiro gave her. Now, she's getting ready to go to sleep, sure, so it makes sense that she would be taking it out, but we have these two paired visuals. Ichigo is taking out the gift from Hiro that she's been holding on to all this time, and then we cut to Zero Two, holding the more recent gift from Hiro to the girl that is his partner and his interest. Like the forecast analogy, this will be repeated at the end to suggest a change in the status quo. In our next part, we return to treating the Klaxosaurus like a big deal by indicating that another Gutenberg class, like Target Beta, is inbound. They will sortie out to meet it this time around, and they plant the detail of extra fuel packs to accommodate this. Hiro, newly aware of Ichigo's feelings toward him, steals a glance at her but gets caught, and she seems to be left wondering. The squad rolls out and comes face to, uh, brain, as they encounter yet another Klaxosaur design. This one seems something like a jellyfish, or perhaps a Portuguese man-o-war, especially as it seems to float above the battlefield in the same way one of those floats above the water's surface, with its stingers drifting below. Team Argentia stays consistently reckless and attacks. They extricate themselves from the first attack, and we get to see that this Klaxosaur can explode parts of itself. Despite this danger, the lure of the visible core is too much for Zotome, and he rushes them back in. Does anyone else think that the glowing blue part of this thing looks like a bomb about to drop? It looks like that when we change angles, too, so it seems intentional. Anyway, Goro and Ichigo both see the danger their squad made is in and rush in to save them, putting themselves in danger. This is consistent with their behavior we saw in the showdown with Target Beta. It's clear, thanks to the small explosion we already saw, that it's going to attempt to explode them, and Goro cries out for everyone to get clear. Now, the effort to display the episode primarily from Goro's point of view pays off, as we first seem to have the mystery of what happened in the explosion to be no mystery at all. He's knocked out, and there are error messages and alarm sirens, but it seems he's fine. It's a relaxation of the tension building up to the explosion, and weird to come so soon afterward. We can't see out the viewport, but that has been set up for us before, as we've seen connection failures blank those screens out. So, we're expecting that Ichigo must also be knocked out, and that's why the sirens were still going off. But then, he glances down at the pistol seat, and it's empty. And we're even more disoriented than we would have been because we'd relaxed our guard. Where is Ichigo? How does that make sense? I first thought that we might be going to some sort of dream state thing, like Hiro did during his near death, where he finds himself in realistic environments that are strangely empty but it's not desaturated like that was, and they quickly replay the previous scene strictly from Goro's point of view, diving straight into his memory like we did with the hair clip. It seems the Franks has an emergency escape pod system built in. What's more, it makes total sense for it to be the stamen that fires it off. As we saw last time with the acid and the girls' attempts to cover themselves, their nervous system for input and output seems to be connected directly to the Franks. Goro wasn't about to let her feel that explosion against her own skin when he had an option like this at his disposal. The girl's odd posing suddenly becomes handy as well, as they're already halfway to a protective fetal position and can be evacuated wholesale with the harness they are tightly bound to. 
I'm not saying that's the whole story on why they pose the way they do, because again, I think the implied sexuality is intentional, but it is nice for it to have some in-universe pragmatism. I do want to know where the current pistol seating came from, though. Like, we just saw it evacuated out the front. Is there a backup that slides into place? What if you evacuate that one? Is it turtles all the way down? I'm teasing because, actually, it makes sense for there to be a backup, as we find out in a moment that Franks can't use their magma energy without a pistol. Which means that Goro knew he was stranding himself by choosing Ichigo's well-being. What a boss. Anyway, Hiro hails him on the radio and begins to catch him up to speed. Notice that the first thing that Goro wants to know was about Ichigo's well-being. Doll. Now they swap a bit of info to update him further, and Hiro's tone of voice tells us that he is not in the midst of fighting. It seems it's over, and Goro asks for a transport home. And then, the payoff for having the viewing screens offline comes with a redoubling of our tension. The Klaxosaur didn't self-destruct, they didn't defeat it, it's still en route to the plantation, and Goro is stuck in the midst of it. Hiro and Goro each agree to work on a solution and sign off to save power. We get a little bit of world building on the Franks here, learning that they have life support systems that work without the pistol attached, but that also introduces a secondary clock to our episode's conflict. The Klaxosaur approaching the plantation is one clock, but even if they delay it somehow, they still have to get Goro out before his oxygen expires. I do want to point out that while Hiro is trying to comfort his friend and tell him they'll think of something, he also can't help but want to apologize. He doesn't feel right about leaving him behind. Ichigo feels the same way, except more so, as she bursts onto the scene. By the way, have we ever gotten an explanation for the girl's combat uniform requiring high heels? I know they don't move during combat, so the impracticality of them isn't that important, but heels are an aesthetic thing. Is that really important when going into battle? Other than because the audience looks at them in their tight suits? Anyway, Ichigo is raging about them standing around when Goro is trapped inside, but I suspect there is some survivor's guilt going on as well, and she is channeling it as anger at Goro and at the others. Miku interprets this as anger and dismissiveness, and decides to fight Ichigo's fire with some fire of her own. I like that Zorome immediately knows he's out of his element once Miku starts up. She lays some hard truths on Ichigo, which are probably all the more difficult to hear coming from someone else, as it means they've noticed Goro bailing her out. As we find out in a moment, this isn't the whole story, but her partner being in jeopardy and her helplessness to do anything about it has put Ichigo into a panic. Emotions are too high, but before they boil over, Nana and Hachi interrupt, and a new updated briefing is held. Notice once again that Zero Two is separated from the rest of the squad. She's outside the circle. They discuss Goro's situation and the Klaxosaur's explosive fuel, as well as a hard limit on our original clock of the Klaxosaur approaching Plantation 13. Succeed in beating that limit, or the Plantation will open fire on Goro and Klaxosaur alike. Ichigo's response to this is to want to speak to Goro. His relief at her waking up, which is him worried about her while he's in mortal peril, is shouted down by her being angry at him for, well, for just that way of prioritizing her over himself. Evidently, he's made this a long habit, resulting in him suffering injury at times, and she accuses him of making selfish decisions. It seems, like it did to Miku, that Ichigo doesn't understand what that word means. Sacrificing himself for her is the opposite of selfish, right? But to Ichigo, he didn't give her a choice in the matter. He took away her right to choose to suffer in order to protect him, 
or to risk the same things that he risked. And she asks him, why don't you lean on me a little? You see, he's happy to have her lean on him. He loves her, cares about her. It's satisfying to him to save her at his own peril. But he didn't realize that she might feel the same way. She cares about him, would put herself in peril for his sake too, but it seems she isn't going to get to make that choice. You'd think the one saved should be feeling positive about salvation, while the one doomed should be feeling negative about their fate, but it's actually the opposite. She's not happy about being saved, she's upset at not being able to save him. He gets to feel happy and satisfied, while she is stuck feeling miserable. In a way, this makes his choice selfish, at least to Ichigo and the panic she's in. This is why he's so surprised to find out she's crying. He never considered that she might have the same desire to protect him. But that surprise is not enough to change him, as the next exchange is really about him trying to reassure her that he's fine, that he knows how to take care of things. In reality, he intends to self-destruct to save the rest of them, and he doesn't want anyone else, including her, to put themselves at risk saving him when he can end the threat by himself. This is the same kind of selfishness that she was just accusing him of. Unfortunately for his plan, but fortunately for him, Ichigo knows him better than he realizes and concludes correctly that he's up to something. Now she's galvanized to try something, anything, to save him, but what? Zero Two, all but forgotten, once again decides to add something to the group discussion and reveals the exhaust hole she saw during the previous engagement, even suggesting that someone could fit through there. While this seems like the obvious thing you should share with a squad as it assesses the threat, Zero Two is still not used to working in a group, thinking like a group, being part of a group. Baby steps, yes, but even small steps forward are still steps forward. Our last part begins with them enacting this plan, leaving Janista and Chlorophytum to man the last line of defense, while Argentia and Strelizia carry out the rescue mission. On the way, they discuss the risk she is taking, the unknown threat to herself for attempting it. And she says, but there's a chance, right? What a boss. Zero Two is frank, like always, saying she wouldn't do it if it was her, but Ichigo insists that she will anyway. I kind of feel like Zero Two reappraises her for a bit in this moment, and finds favorably, saying she doesn't dislike this sort of thing. They coordinate to get her inside the Klaxosaur, and she falls through to the water-like area where Delphinium is trapped. Suddenly, a passing detail from the beach episode, where Yukuno remarks that Ichigo was always good at swimming, becomes an important detail, as Ichigo is prepared for this unusual demand of freediving down to her franks. Goro, meanwhile, is nearing the end of Delphinium's life support, and presumably his own life. This has him reflective, and we get to see more of the parasite's childhood in Garden. Goro had attempted to get himself isolated or ignored by being hated, but it seems only to have gotten him beaten up a lot because he was weak. Ichigo attempts to intervene, but he calls her off, and he does so by uttering this line, I've got this in the bag, even if I'm by myself. Well, this is the very thing he said a moment ago to sign off, the thing that made Ichigo realize he was probably up to something self-destructive. But just like now, the child version of her doesn't back off from this, and they team up to fight back. As Ichigo says, maybe they can't win alone, but the two of them together can. Goro is thinking that this is the moment he must have started loving Ichigo, but then notes that Hiro was already there beside her from the beginning. His mere presence and charisma seems to de-escalate the situation, and you can see that Goro understood the dynamic between him and Ichigo right from the start. But he says that he was okay with that because Hiro was special to me in his own way too. 
and we are to understand that they persisted this way as a trio right up until the present. It does make a difference in a love triangle situation for the people who are competitors to like each other. Hero is the object of Ichigo's affection, and Zero Two is the object of Hero's. But compare how Gotoro has treated Hero against how Ichigo has treated Zero Two. Goro's long friendship with Hiro is probably part of why his own feelings were confusing to him. He can't easily resent Hiro the way Ichigo can resent Zero Two. Now, this is the second time this episode that Goro has told himself that he is fine with the arrangement. But then he thinks to himself, as what he believes might be his last thoughts, that he has changed his mind, and that his one regret is that his feelings never got through to her. Against the background of these thoughts, Ichigo swims on, and we see the hair clip gift from Hiro, fall off during her attempts to save Goro's life. We also know that our clock is about to run out, as the fuel is low and the Klaxosaur will soon cross the last defense line. Goro prepares to self-destruct and reminds us again of the backup fuel pack. And then, the one person he really wants to save busts through the hatch right as he's wishing he could have told her how he felt. I feel like the universe is telling you something, man. He's shocked and a bit distraught because of the risk, but Ichigo is positively pleased with herself. And why not? Finally, she gets to be the one who risks injury to save him, and it looks like it's going to work out. She calls him out on his thought process, and echoes the sentiment about winning together that she told him in their youth. Her smiling face seems to create a change in him. He thought he was happy that she had cried for him. That is to say, he thought he got enough satisfaction about being able to sacrifice himself for her and having her appreciate it, even mourn for him. But now, put into the role of the one being saved, he gets to see the happiness that this gives to her. This is a parallel to Hero's own change during the fight with Target Beta, where he had been willing to die for a cause, and instead realizes that living for one would be far greater. Goro is in the same place. Suddenly, dutifully sacrificing himself for the one he loves, because it's the best he can hope for, isn't enough. And maybe, it isn't the best he can hope for either. Overcome with this idea, he extends a hand to her, and she tells him to stop being gross. Oof. Hey, baby steps, remember? Reunited, they are indeed able to win as a team, escaping the Klaxosaur and leaving it a nasty present. The bomb-like nature of the Klaxosaur comes back around, as the self-destruct causes a chain reaction that is like a small nuclear blast. This blast appears to disable the Franks, and we join Goro and Ichigo alone outside Delphinium, having just patched each other up from the explosion. Ichigo learns she has lost her hair clip, and panics a bit at losing Hiro's gift to her, before Goro uses this perfectly arranged situation to complete the act of giving her the gift from years before. Since it's identical, she thinks he just found it for her. And, in accordance with normal anime love triangle rules, Goro is happy just to have given it to her and he then accepts this explanation of hers, never revealing the truth about it or how he feels toward her. Everything continues just as it has. My man! Ichigo is pretty stunned, as she has only recently figured out what he's saying even means. She's been as ignorant to his affections as Hiro has been to hers. That has to be an interesting bit of perspective for her. Goto goes on to explain to her that he didn't want to regret things anymore, his own brush with death has given him perspective, allowing him to rise above normal anime tropes about unrequited love. It turns out she wanted to say something to him too, thanking him for being her partner. I'm sure she feels especially appreciative after Miku's words and her own helpless feeling when she was worried he was lost. 
Of course, that has way less gravity than what he just confessed to her, and she has no idea how to respond. He diffuses this confusion, telling her he isn't expecting an answer, and asks that they just stay this way for a while, and she assents, signaling that the awkwardness has passed. Finally, we have an echo back to his opening thoughts about the forecast for her weather, and how he suddenly doesn't know how to predict her. Now, I said earlier that this callback was a way of signaling to us that there may be a change in the status quo. The nature of this change is heavily implied to be a change in their relationship, or at least the hope of change, and is represented by the giving of the hair clip to her, replacing Hero's gift with his own. Of course, she hasn't actually put it on yet, but she has it now and can do what she wants with it. This gift transfer comes in the same episode where Hero transferred something of Naomi's into a present to his new partner, Zero Two. This mirrors, <laughs> sorry, this mirrors transforming the people involved in one type of relationship into different people in the same type of relationship. In Naomi and Zero Two's case, this relationship is partners. In Hero and Goro's case, this is the relationship of someone who is their hero or even love interest. The earlier scene with gifts from Papa further reinforces that this episode was in part about giving gifts, putting even more emphasis on this hair clip exchange in the final scene. The fate of these two is left up in the air for the moment, and Goto's last line probably resonates with the audience as well. Right now, you're impossible to forecast. In goals today, literally nothing. I can't even say that Goto has a new goal of making Ichigo his, because so far his realization of loving her has not changed anything about the way he acts or wants. He even specifically states that he's not expecting an answer or anything to his love statement. We could have made telling her how he feels a goal of his midway through this episode, but he realizes this goal by the end. So at least there is a chance that his passive ways so far in the series could change. If they do, we can determine what his real goal is concerning Ichigo. Right now, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but we'll keep watch. Now, conflict-wise, we are relatively bare again. Uh, we do have a little resolution here, though, with our Ichigo Fallout conflict. I'd said before that this had gone a long way to being resolved, with Ichigo realizing how she feels, but I also said that Goto was caught up in its wake a bit, and that may still be a looming conflict. Well, that did come to a head this time, although in a different way than I would have guessed. Still in a way that makes sense, though. You see, Ichigo's confusion and the conflict it caused was largely because she didn't understand what she was feeling toward Hiro, and the presence of Zero Two stirred this up in disorienting ways for her. Once she understood this better, it wasn't going to blindside her again, but she still didn't understand how Goto felt about her. Of course, he didn't either, but it was still a thing that could blindside her, and it did so this episode. She doesn't quite understand why he behaves the way he does toward her. In a way, this is what causes each of them to take risks. Now though, at the end, she understands. Even if it's potentially awkward in the future, it's no longer an unknown, no longer an X-factor. Therefore, I'm going to call this conflict resolved. Now there's still the potential for weirdness once they all find out where babies come from, and that has specific applications to this pair, but that will be a conflict all its own if it does come, so we'll make it something else then. In theme today, I really only want to talk about one new symbol and its interconnectivity with what we have so far. Yes, today's episode had some continuation of thematic patterns we've discussed before, uh, such as the weather analogy and its relation to water themes, 
and the replacing of one flight-themed hairpin with another. Uh, but these are all patterns we've been over a lot, so today I want to discuss something newer. So, mistletoe. Now the lore most of you are probably already familiar with is the Christmas tradition of kissing under the mistletoe. And considering the emphasis on kissing throughout the series, this might seem where I'm going. I'm not though. I mean, having the extra subtext of kissing is great, but mistletoe has a lot of interesting history and cultural significance. So let's dive in. Let's start with the science and move to lore and culture afterward. First and foremost, mistletoe is a parasite, but it's a special type of parasite called a hemiparasite. These type of plants are parasitic, yes, but they can also perform photosynthesis themselves. In other words, they are dependent on a host for their sustenance and growth, but in a pinch, they can do for themselves. Now mistletoe is poisonous to humans, but that hasn't stopped it from being a frequent component in medicines throughout the years. In some cultures, it was actually one of the most revered and prized ingredients, called all heal for the wide array of maladies it was used for, and this was true for cultures as widespread as the cults of Northern Europe and the Aino of Japan. It seems a fitting dual purpose for something that already has a dual nature. It also is evergreen, while the trees it attacks and grows off of are deciduous, which means that it blends in with the greenery in warm months, but when the leaves fall off its host, it remains green, seemingly alive and green while the tree around it has withered. This is part of what gave rise to its cultural importance, but we'll get to that in a moment. It's also how I first guessed that the tree in the credits had mistletoe in it, if that turns out to be true. It's the lone green thing in winter in some forests, and those ball shapes are pretty telltale. That persistence throughout the year, as well as the way it grows in tight balls, means that there are a number of birds that utilize it for nesting or protection. I'll remind you now that mistletine is the name of our parasite's home, their nest, if you will, and that it also has a strong birdcage visual to it as well. Considering all of our bird and flight metaphors to this point, this should come as a surprise to no one. That's actually not even the end of it. The name for mistletoe comes from the fact that people observed that it tended to grow where birds lighted on trees and left droppings. The two parts of the name are Anglo-Saxon for dung and twig. In reality, the seeds of mistletoe are often spread by birds, so they weren't far off. Mistletoe and birds, then, are closely linked, cooperative life forms. Now, I alluded to its cultural significance. Its aforementioned evergreen nature gave rise to reverence and mythology surrounding it, as did its seemingly miraculous ability to grow without roots in the earth, making it seem like a gift from heaven. Celtic and Germanic peoples believed that the mistletoe actually stored the essence of the trees it was found in, that their vitality would, in winter, retreat into the mistletoe, which remained green through the cold and bare months. In spring, as the tree itself began putting forth leaves again, it was believed that this was the essence of the tree returning from the mistletoe back into the rest of the plant. This gave it a strong association with rebirth and with fertility, a belief that the type of regenerative and restorative power resided in the mistletoe itself, and using it for both medicinal and ceremonial reasons naturally followed. More on that in a second, but I'm sure you can already see how well that jives with thematic patterns we've talked about so far. There are a number of mythological beliefs and practices concerning mistletoe, and cultures from France to Greece to Japan all use mistletoe for curative, restorative, or fertility reasons. However, the story I want to relate to you now actually comes from Norse mythology. This is the story of the god Baldr, son of Odin and Frigg, brother to Thor, 
and who is himself a god of purity, light, and the sun. One night, he had a dream of his own death, and in some versions, his mother also had this dream. She learns of it either way, and fearing it is true, she sets out to prevent it. She does this by going to every creature and object in the world and asking them to vow never to hurt Balder. They all agree. But, and the reasons depend on the version, she did not ask this of Mistletoe. Loki, god of mischief, learns this little detail and hatches a plot. He makes either an arrow or a spear out of mistletoe and goes to where the gods are gathered. Due to Balder's new invulnerability, the gods have made a pastime out of hurling things at him, knowing he can't be harmed. Loki presents the mistletoe weapon to Balder's twin brother, Hodor, who is blind. He hurls the weapon along with everyone else, but because Frigg neglected to get mistletoe's cooperation, the weapon pierces and kills Balder. Now a lot happens after that, and in some versions, this death of Balder is the very act that heralds the coming of Ragnarok. So, looking at mistletoe as a whole, what do we have? It's a parasite, okay. We have that link with our actual parasites. It can produce energy on its own if it has to, perhaps suggesting that as dependent and coddled as our parasites are, they might be able to make do on their own if it ever came up. The name of their lodging is another word for mistletoe, and it houses them like mistletoe houses birds. Furthermore, mistletoe in the real world is spread by birds. Mistletine in this world, and the entire biodome habitat, only exist because of the parasites. It's there because of them. In our Nordic story, mistletoe is the only thing that can kill Balder. Likewise, the parasites and their franks appear to be the only counter to the Klaxosaurs. So, what can all this suggest? Well, like I said, mistletoe is evergreen. Even when the world around them looks barren or ruined, they themselves look vibrant and full of vitality. Because of this, mistletoe had a strong association with death and rebirth and the cycle of the seasons, something we've talked about before as being one of the most universal themes in storytelling. It is distinctly on the rebirth side of this theme and is therefore also associated with fertility in the same way that flowers are. Now, the awakening sexuality in our squad mirrors this fertility theme all by itself, but we also still have my ongoing speculation about infertility in the wider world. That may not turn out to be true, though nothing has overturned it yet, but let's assume it's true for the moment. A widespread infertility problem in the world, a barrenness in humanity, would be just like a forest in winter. Alive, yes, but if the winter continues forever, then that will cease to be true. Spring won't come, there will be no new flowers or greenery at all. The dread mankind historically feels during winter is understandable. The green things all seem to wither and die, food becomes scarce, and even the sun itself seems to be dying, showing itself less and less even as the world grows colder and colder. It's no wonder so many myths and practices rose up around trying to bring the sun and spring back to the world. Amongst all this gloom and darkness and seeming death, there is the mistletoe, green and vibrant as ever, seeming to store the life of its host in itself, waiting for the day it can return to the world. This might be exactly the position our children are in. They may hold the key and hope for humanity in themselves, and the world waits for them to figure out how to return vitality and fertility back to the world, to bring life back to spring. Obviously this interpretation relies a bit on the infertility being a thing, but definitely fertility in general and death and rebirth itself have been hinted at regardless, and mistletoe fits nicely into those with its symbolism. 
It will be really interesting to see the significance of that tree in Zero Two's past. In what to watch for, so just like the lack of goal and conflict progress, there is once again very little progress here. There is a single thing uh, down here in the miscellaneous questions. Like mentioned, I had guessed that the ball shapes in the tree that shows up in the credits and in Zero Two's original vision was mistletoe. As you can probably tell from that long bitten theme, I am pretty confident that's what this is. So we'll cross this one off. As to things to add, really, we watch for more progress in girl-boy relationships. Uh, that's on here already, but we're not taking it off this time because I think there's more to come. So instead, we'll add the specifics reveal this episode. We'll watch to see if Hiro changes how he relates to Ichigo for learning how she feels, and we'll see if Ichigo changes how she relates to Goro after learning how he feels. Ichigo could also theoretically change how she feels towards Hiro as well. This could go more than one way, and they've demonstrated that they don't intend to let everyone's feelings stay buried, so we should expect some movement here. That is pretty much it for what to watch. Um, this was a very self-contained episode, raising new questions and tensions, but answering them before moving on to the next one. This is actually a rare episode that you could probably show entirely out of context to someone, and they would be able to pick up on the universe and where they are and understand what was going on. It was very self-contained. In speculation, uh, we do have one thing to cross off. Just like the conflict we crossed off, uh, this is related to Goto and Ichigo's behavior in combat due to the feelings each of them harbors. Now, this does not really meet the qualification of fall apart, but when I added this, I did so under the reasoning that Goro's feeling for Ichigo would eventually cause something to happen once he understood how he felt, in a similar way that Ichigo broke down remembering her kiss with Hiro. Well, they didn't break down exactly, but a big part of why this played out the way it did was because of how Goro feels about Ichigo and that he realized it too. All's well that ends well, and now that it's out in the open, it's probably not a threat anymore, so we'll take it off. There's also two that we'll remove because the conditions have passed. I thought Mitsuru's past would have come up before now, or Ikuno's if it hadn't. Neither has, and I'm sure by removing this, I'm probably tempting the universe to make this the focus of the next episode or something. Uh, but I will admit that soon is no longer applicable, so I'll take this off, along with the one about Hiro and Ikuno, as it was conditional on exploring Ikuno's past. As for things to add, uh, now that we know that mirror in the credits belongs to Zero Two, I will speculate that the man with the thin circle glasses will end up being someone antagonistic to her, either in the past or the future, or possibly even both. So lastly, what to speculate about the future of our love polygon? Well, there are still things we don't know about what kind of story we're in. No one has died, but the threat of death has been implied a lot lately. We still don't know the real fate of Naomi, which would have been a big clue. Against my better judgment then, here is some speculation made under the assumption that Naomi is actually dead. Uh, this speculation is also conditional and multi-part itself, so uh, bear with me. Here's the first conditional speculation. If Zero Two makes it to the end of the show, the last episode or two at least, then either Ichigo and Goro become a thing or Goto doesn't make it out alive. Goto and Ichigo match well in their own way, and there's no reason they couldn't persist as friends with Hiro and then add Zero Two if Ichigo is no longer hung up on Hiro. Ichigo now has the seed of Goto's affection in her mind, which could lead to her own change. The hairpin symbolism reinforces this possibility, 
and her goal to stay with Hero forever could still be fulfilled without them being romantically involved. There is a second part to this conditional speculation. If Ichigo and Goro do become a thing before Act 3 begins, then I'm guessing either Zero Two is doomed or she becomes fully human. That seems contradictory to that first part, I know, but it's about timing. If they remove some of the character tension early enough by pairing those two, then I do not think it bodes well for Zero Two, or else bodes very well. Really depends on what we know about her goals at that point. Her character arc is at least partially about her becoming human, but we don't yet have that as an expressed wish of hers, uh, which is why I think it's either or. If it's possible for her to undo her monstrous side and be a normal girl alongside Hero, then that's on the table and her death is less likely. This might be what that opening scene was. I think it's very telling that we can't see if she has horns or not. However, if that's a dream or some deceptive goal that she can't actually fulfill, then her aspiration to become human won't be realized by literal means. Instead, she will metaphorically become human by displaying empathy and self-sacrifice. In that scenario, having Ichigo as a fallback plan for Hiro would diminish the meaning of that action by Zero Two. Again, this is based on the idea that Naomi is dead, and the inference I am making about the tone the writers want overall. To restate all that in other words, if all their relationships are still up in the air, well into the third act, then we have a good chance of both couples being, well, couples, and also seeing the end of the story. They could all still make it out alive with no couples at all. Zero Two's past and nature might cause her to leave Hero and everyone by the end, leaving them all in their current frustrated state. But I think the nature of Goro and Ichigo's relationship and the state of Zero Two's condition are linked to one another. Now I'm not actually going to speculate this next part, but I could even see where Ichigoro becomes a thing alongside Hiro and Zero Two, and then both Zero Two and Goro don't make it for whatever reason, leaving Ichigo and Hiro together and the possibility of them being an unresolved but potential thing at the end. We don't know enough about the series at this point, and I'm still expecting something bigger to shake things up, so that's about the best we can do. Now I know all that's a kind of confusing speculation, uh, but those are my first thoughts on the significance of Goto's confession this time, uh, both to Hiro and Ichigo. I've been wrong plenty of times already, and this is not necessarily what I want to happen, but I feel the framework is there for it to play out uh, one of those ways. So that is it for today. We ended up with another episode without much goal or conflict progress. Uh, but as I pointed out, we've switched from the Hero and Zero Two show of the first six episodes to three episodes in a row where Hero is not the narrator. Structurally then, it seems like we're in a part of the story filling out side characters and side plots after the initial Hero Zero Two tension was resolved, setting up for all these elements to come together in the second half of the show. This means we might get one more show that focuses on other parasites, like Mitsuru Kokoro, or Mitsuru Ikuno, or, shockingly, Fitoshi, and literally anyone else. Maybe the cat. In such a case, it wouldn't be surprising to get a big upheaval episode when we get to 12, or even a two-part upheaval in 11 and 12. But first, we have to get to episode 10, so I'll see you when we do. 
title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.